Hello and welcome to Paper Boys, the podcast where we unravel the research papers behind the latest major headlines in science. I'm your host, Charlie. And I'm your other host, James. Do you ever hear about science in the news and wonder, isn't there more to the research behind this story? Well, every Thursday, Charlie and I go behind the actual research papers behind these stories to open up the work behind beautiful new discoveries and cut through misinformation. Today on the episode, I'm bringing in a paper about bomb carbon. Do you know what that is, James? Is that like the really good carbon that you can find? Yeah, like it's it's the bomb. Uh, no, it's unfortunately it's not. It's actually the really bad kind. Oh, no. Why would they yeah. give it such a misnomer? <laughs> yeah, it's unfortunately named, but it is aptly named. It's it's actually radioactive carbon isotopes left over from thermonuclear bomb testing. And in this paper, scientists have actually found traces of this carbon. Well, more than traces. They found a lot of this carbon in the deepest trenches in the ocean. Wow, that sounds really scary. I haven't read this paper, but I'm already frightened to hear the results. Yeah, it's definitely uh, alarming, so we'll, we'll dive into it. Charlie and I are both PhD students who read a lot of papers for our own research, so this podcast is our way of sharing our love for reading about science with anyone who wants to learn more about the discoveries that affect us all and make it into mainstream media. We are the Paper Boys. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode. Before we get started, just want to quickly throw out, if you aren't already, please follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at paperboyspod. Also, we'd love it if you left us a review on iTunes. And if you enjoy the podcast, please recommend it to a friend. So with that, Charlie, you mentioned bomb carbon, not the good kind of carbon, the bad kind of carbon from bombs, right? How did you find about this paper? Find out about this paper. This one came up uh, in the news, as all of our <laughs> topics do. I, I feel like you could probably splice together at this point now 41 clips of us going, yeah, I saw this one in the news, <laughs> <laughs> which really goes without saying by now. But uh, yeah, I saw a bunch of headlines on this. So why don't I just read a couple of these off? So Scientific American was the first place I saw it. And they said, bomb carbon has been found in deep ocean creatures. Ooh. Yeah, so I was a little uh, withholding earlier when I said they just found it in the ocean. They actually found it like in animals that are living in these trenches, which is Jeez. pretty nasty. That's crazy too, because I mean, these trenches are some of like the physically most remote places on the planet, right? Yeah, I mean, they should be virtually untouched by human interference, right? They're like we don't even than know what's Everest, down there. Like, yeah, yeah, we can't even can't even send things down there, really. Three people, I think three people in submarines have ever been down there. Yeah. James Cameron is one, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think another guy actually just set a record like a few weeks ago. Really? That's cool. But anyways, what were some of the other headlines? So the Weather Channel says radioactive carbon found in animals at the ocean's deepest depths. Kind of the same thing. Science Daily said radioactive carbon from nuclear bomb tests found in deep ocean trenches. At this point, just giving you more of the same, but uh, the gist of this is these scientists, dis- they, they pulled up some creatures from the bottom of these ocean trenches and they sort of did some analysis on their tissue and they found remnants of nuclear bomb testing. Wow. Okay. That's scary. I mean, I know that was a huge deal when 
nations were developing atomic bombs in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Like, they were just, you know, blowing up these bombs and all the radioactive material is getting carried up into the jet stream. And, like, you know, you blow up a bomb in Nevada and suddenly, like, little kids in, like, Minnesota are getting cancer. Things like that. Yeah, it was not not our brightest moment in history, I don't think. Well, not the brightest figuratively. I think the bomb. Yeah, I guess bright. it was literally the brightest, probably. <laughs> but I mean, you, you, I don't know. It's you think of these the oceans as being like so robust to all human activity, but especially like the last couple of years, you're realizing it's like definitely not. No, I think the ocean is actually taking the worst of human activity. I mean, that's what we several months ago we had an episode about how climate change is linked to the death of marine species more so than land species. Yeah, that's true. Like small changes in ocean temperatures cause massive amounts of extinctions. But to sort of walk back the fear mongering a little bit, I think that this radioactive carbon isotope that they're talking about in this paper is not as like dangerous and damaging as it sounds when you call it bomb carbon. It's just an isotope of carbon. It's, it's specifically carbon-14. Oh, or I think okay. This is the naturally occurring carbon isotope, right? That they use for like carbon dating and stuff. Yeah, exactly. And that's actually kind of the techniques they end up using in this paper is carbon dating style techniques to analyze it. But the way it was produced when they did all this nuclear testing in the 50s and 60s was, I guess, the neutrons from these nuclear explosions go up into the atmosphere and they collide with nitrogen atoms. And somehow that produces carbon-14. I don't understand it exactly. but So it's sort of like a byproduct. It's not like radioactive material released from the actual bomb itself oh okay okay so this is i mean it's still scary slightly less scary i guess it's like this isn't radioactive remnants from these explosions in the ocean in the marina trench yeah not quite um but you know you mentioned that it's a naturally occurring isotope which it is but these bombs actually doubled the amount in the atmosphere over the course of two decades yeah okay so it was a very, very substantial effect that this had on the atmosphere. So, so do you mind telling us uh, a little bit about the actual paper then that you found behind these news headlines? Yeah, sure. So it was published in Geophysical Research Letters, and it's called Penetration of Bomb Carbon-14 into the Deepest Ocean Trench. Could you, I was going to say, could you reread that as like in like your best surfer voice? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Penetration of Bomb carbon, bro. <laughs> Presented at UC Santa Cruz. Yeah. In the deepest ocean, bro. <laughs> <laughs> you just get pitted. Yeah. Um, anyway. Yeah. The, the first author is um, Chad Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> nice, Chad. Se- second author, uh, <laughs> Kelly Slater. No, the, the, fir- <laughs> the first author is uh, named Ning Wang from the State Key Laboratory of Isotope Geochemistry in Guangzhou, China. And there was a whole bunch of other authors. I think they're all from the same institution. This came out in April 2019 as a preprint, but it actually was only really picked up in the news in like mid-May, so like last week or so. Okay, nice. I can't wait to read Tony Hawk's commentary on it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It'll be very, very revealing, I'm sure. (laughs) No, that's cool. So, okay, so the main institution, this is a research university in China? Yes. Okay. What's sort of the background on it? Like, how did they even know to start looking for carbon-14 so deep in the ocean? 
so I think the real motivation in this study was to examine the diets of these amphipods that live in these trenches. And just for some context, that when we're talking about deep ocean trenches, these are like deep, deep trenches. I mean, this is literally like one of the trenches they pulled out of was the Mariana Trench, which is the deepest point on planet Earth. And so, do you remember what the depths are of that? Just to give people. Yeah. So the scientific name for these trenches is called the Hadal Zone. H A D A L. Like Hades. And yes, it's literally named after Hades, god Hades. of the underworld. Yeah, because. It's like such a deep, scary place. And just for reference, this is a level. So previously, the deepest like ocean region that they had was called the abyssal zone. So already yeah. you're talking about the abyss. It's like terrifying. And then one day they realized like, wait a second, there's something deeper and it's like different than the abyss. And they were like, all right, I guess this is the underworld now. This is Hades. Yeah. Jeez. And yeah, so it's like, scarier than the abyss and the range of depths for the hadal zone is twenty thousand and thirty six thousand feet deep that's crazy because like so mount everest is what twenty nine thousand feet tall yeah so that's like a mile more profound than mount everest yeah i mean imagine that you are in a plane and you look down out the window look down at the ground oh. that's cruising altitude of like thirty six thousand feet yeah so now look down at the ground and imagine that instead you're in a boat on the water and you're looking down to the floor of the ocean. I actually can't believe that. I don't think it's yeah, real. Yeah, it kind of helps you like contextualize how much water there is in the ocean, you know? Yeah, what, 75% of the planet is ocean, something like that. Yeah, and yeah. So a lot of, there's a lot of water on this planet. Yeah. That's these crazy. are some hot takes we're, we're making right now. Yeah, really. Did you know the ocean has a lot of water? (laughs) Extra, extra. New fact. (laughs) Um, So, I mean, I I have a lot of questions about this now because I'm curious how you even collect these little... What was the name of the animal again? They're called amphipods. And I think they... Amphipods. Specifically, hadal amphipods, ones that live in the hadal region. Okay. Like, how do you even collect those? (laughs) That's got to be really hard. Yeah, I mean, I think they literally... They drop like traps down like the same way you'd catch lobsters or anything they just like lower things down and then they let them sit there for a while and they bring them back up except you need like seven miles worth of chain yeah i i mean the logistics of it sound really really difficult but it works i mean they lowered it down and they pull it back up and they had um they took like several samples from three different trenches and it was like you know they, they got like fewer than 10 in total i think okay so like it's not it's not like on deadliest catch when you see them pulling up a big cage of like hundreds and hundreds of animals from the depths, but not super lucrative fishing careers are to be had. <laughs> no, and dude, if you look at what these amphipods look like, you would not want to eat it. Show me a picture. Let's see this, dude. It's like honestly gross. In the notes, oh. there's a link where it says "ew." Oh, <laughs> clicking on the link that says "ew." I'm like still having trouble looking at it myself. Man, I, I remember in second grade, I did a presentation about anglerfish. Um, oh, man. Yeah, those are freaky. And they uh, sometimes they'll swim up from the depths and then all their internal organs will pop because the pressure. Oh, gross. Ugh. This thing looks pretty gross. I mean, it kind of looks like a shrimp. If a shrimp got even weirder, which is hard to imagine. 
Whoa. Yeah, it kind of it looks like a shrimp from the side, but then front on, like its face just looks like this disgusting, like some kind of organ, you know? It looks like the fly. For those of you who are listening and don't <laughs> already know, one of Charlie's favorite movies is The Fly, featuring Jeff Goldblum in arguably one of his best roles ever. A real career-making role for him. Yeah. Yeah, this will be two weeks in a row now we've talked about The Fly. I think we got to start picking less gross topics. Yeah. We'll, uh, we'll post this link in some of these pictures on the website. They're gross. but uh, Yeah, you have to go check out this, this picture just to like be able to kind of frame in your mind what these scientists had to work with in the lab. Okay. Well, you've really sold me on the emotional importance of these animals. I'm really emotionally invested in their well-being now. (laughs) Yeah. Now you're like, give them all the bomb carbon they want. (laughs) (laughs) That's like a thing. Isn't that a thing with the like World Wildlife Foundation? Like they pick cute animals because like because people will care more. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, their logo is a panda bear, which is like just a living version of a stuffed animal. So (laughs) good branding. Yeah. Okay, so uh, these weird sea shrimp aside, sorry if you're listening and you study these and have grown very fond of them. (laughs) So they dropped down these baskets and caught them. And then what were they looking at to actually find these? Like, what was the purpose of doing this? Were they doing this just to study their diet, you said? Yeah, so that's what I kind of took from this paper was that their motivation here was to analyze where their main food source comes from. And I think I shouldn't say that's their main motivation. I think that that is their pretense for doing this study, where the motivation, you know, if you can't tell from the fact that it's a lab doing isotope geochemistry, they're not biologists, you know, um, they care more about the carbon isotope. So what they already know is that while the ocean does absorb a lot of this bomb carbon out of the atmosphere, it takes like a really, really, really long time for that bomb carbon to diffuse down to such a depth like a scale that you know we probably wouldn't really ever see in our lifetimes oh really just for it to actually like sort of filter down through the miles of ocean water yeah like they actually measure the carbon content of the water down there and it's like negligible compared to what they see at the surface okay and it's like not the the content in the water is not affected by the changes that they saw after the thermonuclear bombs you know because they have like a kind of a time series of how much carbon-14 is in the water, and they see it, you know, rise exponentially or double in the 50s and 60s, but the deep water doesn't show the same trend. Interesting. And so that must just be, I guess, a function of how how the, the carbon diffuses through the water. Yeah, I guess so. But what's interesting is that they actually found very high levels of carbon-14 in these amphipods that they brought up. Interesting. So that suggests that it's not it's getting down there not through just the normal diffusion methods? Right, exactly. And so that's where the whole diet thing comes in. So they kind of like, so what they wanted to do is kind of look at like, okay, well, what are some known potential sources of food for animals living down in the Hadal zone? And there's not many. I mean, like you're so far removed from sunlight and sources of energy that it's like, where would all this food come from? And like, it's not like this little gross, ugly shrimp looking thing is going to be like hunting, you know? Yeah. What do they eat? So it turns out that they eat what's called, I think, refractory organic matter. So all of this, this whole thing, like, honestly, this paper was kind of hard to understand. They do a lot of discussion of like sources of organic matter, which sounds really simple, but it's actually like, there's so many, you know, like, I didn't know this, but you can get organic matter from rocks. 
like there's a recent discovery where there's like entire ecosystems that are surviving in in these hadal zones off of serpentinite which is like a mineral you know it's like a rock that has some sort of organic matter kind of baked in really yeah so None there's all these kind of very appetizing for a human maybe if you're a little rock eating fish yeah some that's little interesting abyssal creature abyssal creature yeah that's that's fascinating yeah and so th- so like this is kind of like these are actually really recent discoveries that they're making of like where where organic matter down there actually comes from so a couple of potential sources are that you know something like serpentinite like a mineral or um there could be since these trenches are at the bottom of you know these really steep walled ravines mm-hmm. if there's like organic matter that somehow settles on those steep walls it kind of like will funnel it down so if there's like an earthquake or any kind of like erosion, it's going to tend downwards until it eventually it, it reaches, you know, the bottom of the Hadal zone. Okay. So that could be oh. another source. Interesting. Okay. So they're kind of just feeding on organic matter that falls down to the bottom of the ocean. Yeah. But, you know, like it, they're so far down there that like it actually is really hard for that food to make it down to them still intact. And so that's why I think that they specifically talk about this, what's called refractory organic matter. And I think that just means like stuff that doesn't really biodegrade very well. Okay. I, I don't, I'm not really sure like what a good example of that is. Like pr- maybe like, you know, cartilage and, and like, I don't want to say bones, but you know, stuff that like has not already been picked clean or kind of washed away yeah. in the water. Because at this point it's got a, all this material has basically passed through every other biome in the ocean on its way yeah, down. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, this or is the last like stop, vertically. you know? Yeah. Okay. So then I guess... My next question is how do you actually figure out what one of these shrimps is eating? Or like what what were the scientists' methods to start analyzing that? Yeah, it's that's a good question. And it like I realize I'm kind of dancing around the whole idea of like, oh, where does the carbon fourteen come into this? So stuff like refractory organic matter or like um this stuff that takes a long time to get down there, they don't expect to have very much carbon fourteen in it because it decays. Like it's an isotope and it has a half-life. And by the time that it finally reaches down there, like a lot of that carbon-14 is gone. And also like any sort of stuff that's any sort of carbon that's coming up from the interior of the earth has, you know, almost no carbon-14 in it or like a very low amount compared to what you see in the surface waters. So I think what they're aiming to do here is or what they really discovered by finding that these amphipods had a high amount of carbon-14 inside of them suggests that it must be coming from the surface waters, which means that their diet somehow is linked to animals that are dying at the surface and very quickly reaching the bottom of the Hadal zone. Okay. Okay. Because that's like, that's one of the common methods for for dating organic material with the carbon-14 is like it's ingested, it's breathed by animals that are exposed to a lot of it. So if it's in their body and then that goes from the surface down to the bottom, these shrimp Sorry, that's not the correct term for them, but they're basically feeding on them and ingesting it themselves, right? Yeah, exactly. So they've gone, they've collected these shrimp-like creatures from the bottom of the ocean. They think they're eating some organic matter, but like once they actually have these creatures in hand, did they talk much in the paper about their actual methods for analyzing the contents of their stomachs to find this? Were they looking at their stomachs? Were they looking at their like body composition? So they were looking at like both their stomachs and also like their muscle tissues. So like not just, actually, I think what they found is that most of the samples they collected had empty stomachs, Hmm. which kind of suggests that like they don't feed very often, you know? 
Okay. And there was a couple other things they talked about later that sort of support that hypothesis. Um, but what they did was, I, as I gather, it was just like a very standard radiocarbon dating technique, which I won't pretend to really like understand and won't try and bore you with trying to explain how it works. But my understanding of it is that they basically like they cut out the muscle tissues and the guts and then they combust them with a couple of different uh, substances, I think like copper oxide and silver, and they just like burn it up at a very high temperature so that it produces CO2. And then they collect that CO2 and they purify it and they convert it into graphite. And then they measure the graphite with a mass spectrometer. And I think that out of that whole process, if you understood that, they're able to pick out how much of the carbon in the CO2 that they've produced is this isotope versus just regular carbon-12. Okay. Interesting. I actually have never known that. You know, you hear about carbon dating all the time, and I didn't realize that's what it takes. Yeah, I didn't. I guess I didn't really understand the process before. I mean, I don't really understand the process now, but... No, but... I know the words to say what they did, so... (laughs) I mean, yeah, that sounds like normal PhD student talk. You realize how much is on all of these things, and you're like, I don't actually know anything, but... Yeah, and like that was one paragraph that I read, and I was like, oh, okay, but that's actually like... a whole lab worth of students like that's their whole life is doing that process like all the time yeah so. interesting fun factoid okay so then with that process then what were they finding you mentioned that they had high levels of carbon 14 but like what does that mean did they collect samples from different spots on the globe yeah so they had samples from i mentioned three different trenches it was the mariana trench the musau trench and the new britain trench Um, Those are 11 kilometers deep, 7.2 kilometers deep, and 9.2 kilometers deep, respectively. And these are... makes my skin crawl to think about. (laughs) And these are all in the West Pacific Ocean, you said? Yeah, West West Pacific Ocean. Um, So they're all, they're not like, you know, too far apart. But like, I think that the amphipods they collected from the Mariana Trench versus the New Britain Trench were different species. Like one of them was Hirondelle gigas and the other one was... Alicella gigantia oh okay they you know because they're even though they're geographically pretty close i mean how would you have any sort of cross breeding or contamination between them like nothing would like who knows maybe those things evolved completely you know separately from each other over a little bit long period of time wow that's interesting totally different species Uh, okay so like from their radiocarbon dating then what did they actually find so the thing that they're measuring out of it is what they call like the delta carbon-14 level. And I had trouble actually figuring out like what they meant by delta carbon-14. But mm-hmm. it seems to be some sort of measure against like the ordinary expected level. But it's hard to tell because, you know, they're looking at, they said that anything greater than negative 50% is considered a result of bomb carbon. And some other numbers that they had in there were like, oh, the water delta carbon-14 content in the Hadal zone was like negative 500%. And I'm like, what does that mean? Negative 500%. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Like much less or like... Yeah, less than like the the base level at the surface. I, I don't know. But so let's just, let's just pretend it's like arbitrary units. Mm-hmm. And so like, you know, the water content is like negative 500. Anything greater than negative 50, I mentioned they consider to be a result of bomb carbon and what they found in these amphipods was between 10 and 65 percent 
So positive, positive 10 and 65. Oh, wow. So much, much higher. Yeah. So substantially higher than like the minimum level they would expect to see if bomb carbon played a role. Okay. Dang. And they did like a really cool analysis on this, actually. Uh, This figure three in the paper, which you can take a look at here, Mm -hmm. where they sort of show that time series of bomb carbon in the atmosphere that I was mentioning, or in the in the surface water, rather. And you can see that from 1960 to about 1980, there's this huge rise, and then it, it tops out and slowly decays. Um, you know, because it's it's an isotope, it's it's got it's got a half life, and it will eventually you know convert back into ordinary carbon. And you can I, see along this decaying line. I think you know the latest day that I had that they have was 2010, and they projected out to 2017, which was when these samples were collected. And that projected line lines up perfectly with the amount of carbon 14 that they found in these amphipods. Wow. Okay, that is cool. Oh, it's also scary looking at this plot because it's like. It goes from 1950 to 2020, and it looks like in 1950, you can see very specific instances of like atomic bombs. I don't oh know if my that's gosh, the case. Right? That might just be noise in the data, but... Yeah, I mean, it kind of does look that way. Like, there's these massive spikes in the, you know, late 1950s, like a couple just big, large things. Yeah, I wonder if that correlates. It'd be interesting. Yeah, I wonder too. But I mean, so they can like pretty conclusively say that these hadal amphipods have a level of carbon-14 in their body that is certainly due to the carbon-14 that was deposited in the atmosphere from these bombs. Like, there's no other possible source for such a high level to be found in their body. Yeah, from the sound of it. Interesting. Well, that's cool. I mean, cool slash scary, right? I guess, what are some of the broader implications from this? It seems like here we are, I don't know when the last terrestrial atomic bomb was detonated, like in the air to where it would show up but i mean from this plot we're definitely in like the decline of the prevalence of radio or carbon 14 but like we're still finding traces of it that's pretty scary yeah i mean we still have like a good i think i saw a stat somewhere that like we still have about 30 percent higher levels or so or maybe like 50 percent higher levels in our atmosphere than we did before the atomic bomb testing but i mean it actually decays you know a lot more quickly than i thought that it did but the implication for the whole diet thing about these hadal amphipods is, you know, I mentioned that this carbon-14 does not diffuse through the water quickly. So this suggests that the food chain is actually a mechanism by which, like, human pollution can reach these very distant biomes. Okay. So normally we just think of kind of the effect of, like, oh, if we use plastic straws, that's going to end up in the ocean and get stuck in a turtle's nose, and that's bad. Yeah. But but like actually it you know these things have way bigger effects like you know there's even some recent studies that show there are microplastics in the tissue of these hadal creatures. Whoa. Like it's not, and like the plastic the is certainly not settling down there. They're not eating the plastic, you know. What's the effect of then eating these fish? Like I know like mercury is often a problem with fish, but like what about plastics? I, that seems like something that we're not sort of uncharted territory. Yeah, it's, it definitely is. And and so, you know, the idea that this pollution can kind of penetrate the food chain and affect all these animals is way more disturbing than just the already disturbing notion that we are polluting biomes. Yeah. Ugh. Well, that's freaky. Were these methods anything novel? Like, have people used these previously to look at 
like the food chain of different animals or is this sort of a new approach? It's a new approach for the Hadal zone. Like they specifically say this is the first time that they've measured carbon-14 in Hadal fauna. So like okay. this, yeah. So, and they suggest like this could be a new technique for analyzing dietary sources of animals in this region. But it's not the first time that they've done this kind of, you know, like carbon dating of animals. I mean, like that's a, that's a well, a tried and true technique, which is why they were even able to use it on these in the first place. Okay. Okay. And there's actually like some kind of interesting little side implications that they found since they were doing carbon dating. And uh, like, I guess in surface waters, the oldest known amphipods are about six years old. So they don't have a very long lifespan, but these are amphipods that are, they don't grow nearly as large as the ones do in the Hadal zone. Hmm. And so because they had this carbon-14 content that they were able to measure, they could figure out the age of the samples that they collected. And they found that they were over 10 years old. Oh, wow. So like much older than the oldest ones that they know of at the surface. So it's like they have like a whole different lifestyle, you know? Like they suggest that they have very low turnover, meaning like they live a very long time and that they very rarely eat and that they have like a very kind of like sedentary lifestyle that lets them just kind of live and do nothing for a while. That's so strange. Like, I don't know. Life is fascinating. (laughs) Yeah. Another hot take right there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, it's, I don't know. Sorry, I'm going off on like a philosophical tangent. Like, what is the life like of one of these little shrimp creatures? Like, what would it be like to live in the in the underworld, literally? Not very exciting, it sounds like. No, um, not exciting. Wow. Well, were there any other like interesting conclusions or thoughts that you saw either from the paper or from the articles that you read about it? No, it actually was a very short paper. And that's kind of all they did. They... I mean, I don't want to down. I don't want to downplay the research, but yeah, they just collected these samples, measured the carbon fourteen, drew a bunch of conclusions, and then you know closed it out. I'm sure that anyone could summarize any paper, you know, similarly simplistically. But yeah, but it was like a very short read, I guess I should say. Okay. Well, with that, how did the popular news media do reporting on it? Also, a really good job. So that Scientific American article that I sent you had a very, very comprehensive coverage, not only of this research, but they also talked about kind of the broader field of pollution and how humans might be affecting animals in these ways. Like that's kind of where I read about these microplastics that they found in these crustaceans in the Mariana Trench. And actually, there's a really good quote in the article from this guy named William Reed, who is an ecologist at Newcastle University, who did the study where they found those microplastics. He said, it was disheartening, but not unexpected. It is probably the saddest piece of research I have ever been involved with. Jeez, that's really sad. Yeah, it's like really depressing. And, you know, it's one thing you kind of read about this and from like in like a clinical perspective of like, oh, yes, well, we are harming these animals. And but like hearing the scientist who was actually there and like probably felt like such a heavy weight, even just like collecting these animals and seeing such a horrible effect. I don't know. It's just it like it it humanizes the research in, in, in some way. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, it seems like a lot of these researchers researchers get into the field because, I mean, I know they weren't necessarily marine biologists, but like many get into the field because they're passionate about it and then they love being out there and studying these things. And to be in a point right now, like where recently there was the UN report about all the species dying off, you know, you see some sad things. You see that like the far reaching effects of these human actions. It's, uh, I guess it's alarming. 
and sad. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, you know, the one thing I take solace in on this research is that carbon-14 is not really harmful to these animals. Mm -hmm. But if the carbon-14 is getting there, then so are the microplastics. Eventually, so is the whatever, like, poisonous effects of increased CO2 content in the animals at the surface. Uh, You know, I'm sure it's just all... The implications are not good no matter what, no matter how you slice it. Yeah. I was mentioning earlier that one person recently set a record for like the lowest submersible dive in the Mariana Trench. Oh, yeah. Like a few weeks ago. And I think like, you know, they had different instruments on the sub submarine that he was in. And they like took pictures of like a gum wrapper at the bottom of the trench. Oh, my God. I don't know. God. Maybe that doesn't make sense to say at the bottom of the trench, wherever he was like. They saw it on the ground. Oh, sorry. Only at 25,000 feet as opposed to like 30. Yeah. Who knows? But man, that's yeah. wild. Pretty crazy. I think they saw a plastic bag too. That's so sad. Yeah. We suck, man. Yeah. Not the paper boys, but humankind in general. Oh, yeah. We're doing, we're doing a lot of good for humanity with this podcast. So <laughs> undoubtedly. <laughs> well, that was a very uh, sad, I guess, somewhat depressing article but an interesting read and discussion so thank you very much charlie for bringing that one in yeah i apologize for bringing the mood down anyone listening but hey sometimes that's science if you want to bring your mood down even further go to the website paperboyspodcast.com and look at the disgusting picture of a hadal amphipod and see see you know maybe you'll feel less bad about all the carbon we're pumping into their muscles and if that did make you feel bad and you want to boost your mood you can Check out our Instagram and Twitter feeds at PaperboysPod so you can stay up to date on other less depressing news episodes or even treat yourself to some delightful Paperboys merchandise. We have t-shirts, tote bags, coffee mugs, anything you can imagine with the Paperboys logo. Check it out on the website, paperboyspodcast.com. We've got Ocean Trench gum. (laughs) Ocean Trench gum. Plastic bags, plastic straws. Anything you could ever want. Just kidding. Uh, Well, thank you everyone for listening and tune in next week for another exciting edition of Paperboys. Thanks for listening. 